Welcome to She's Wild, the podcast for women in land and development. I'm your host, Nancy Surak. I created this podcast as a way to collect conversations of women in the land and development industry. I've been a land broker on the West Coast of Florida for nearly 20 years, and I love to empower other women and to tell them about this amazing industry. But I find often that there just aren't enough women being featured on big stages, whether that's at local conferences or nationally. So I set out to find these women myself that are killing it in my business across North America that are changing the communities that they live in every single day, whether they're building condos, multifamily, single family, office or industrial projects. I hope that you will find this space to be inspirational, motivating, and educational. From time to time, I will feature women who are not only in my business, but also career coaches and motivational speakers. Hello, welcome to She's Wild, the podcast for women in land and development. Today's guest is Ashley Wilson. Ashley, welcome to the show. I always love for my guests to go ahead and give an introduction on their background and tell us a little bit more about what you're doing in real estate and how you got into the business. Well, first and foremost, thank you so much for having me. I got into real estate in 2009. My husband and I were both looking for an alternative investment outside of the stock market. We both were very young um, and... um, you know, following the traditional route that most people follow, which is thinking that you can only invest in the stock market and that's where your 401k is going to land. And one day, if you're lucky enough, you um, will be able to retire off that. I don't know many people doing that these days, but that was the dream that, you know, we were fed from a little kid to um, that point in our life. And it was really my husband who took it upon himself to figure out alternative investments He landed on real estate and he started having me listen to real estate podcasts. Actually, I think it was more in 2007 is when we started doing research. But in 2009 is when we actually pulled the trigger with our first investment property and it snowballed from there. So we've done everything from short-term rentals, long-term house hacking, um, flipping, high-end flipping, uh, multifamily. And then we passively invest in a tremendous amount of things. Um, so anything from, you know, precious metals, uh, insurance. Um, I, I mean, I can't even think of everything, uh, crypto blockchain, um, just a lot of different investments. Um, but it's kind of built upon itself. Um, so, There's no part of the journey that I regret um, as everything is transferable and helped us continue to um, grow our business as it is today. Awesome. So so it was your husband's idea initially, right? Mm -hmm. And you were like, I'm in. Um, Take me back to um, your first deal. What was the first deal you guys ever did? Our first deal was, it was a house hack combo short-term rental. So, uh, my husband was a professional ice hockey player and, um, he had teammates who needed housing. So we bought a house and his teammates rented from us and, and rented other rooms in this house. And then in the summertime, we would short-term rent it. So, um, this is 
pre the technology, smart home technology that we have today. So I had to come up with a strategy because this is not a location where we lived uh, in the off season. I had to come up with a very um, efficient strategy that would allow me not to have to manage it over the summer. And I, I look back on that situation and I can't believe that I didn't continue in short-term rentals because just to put it in perspective, the first season we made 20 grand in three months, the second season, 30 grand, the third season, 40 grand. And this is net, you know? So this is something that was very easy for me to do. And, um, you know, I just put all these systems in place and during the season, we kind of broke even, we didn't really charge any one of his teammates, um, you know, to make this huge profit because we figured out oh, as long as we cover our expenses, um, we don't really need to make money on this because we're living for free. And then in the off season, we make all the money. Um, so that was kind of the strategy at the time. Um, but we did that while both working full-time. I mean, my husband had his hockey career. I was in clinical research and development for a pharmaceutical company. So we both were pulled in other directions besides real estate, it really initially was supposed to be more passive, even though we chose an active strategy. Okay. So you did the first deal, one house. Mm -hmm. Take me to your biggest deal. What was the biggest deal that you've done to date or that you're currently working on? What's the unit count? Um, or size of the deal? We just did a 409 unit um, in February, we acquired a 409 unit, um, property. We're doing a six and a half million dollar renovation on the property. Um, and that's going really, really well. Um, so that was an off market find, um, you know, through a relationship I have with a broker, um, and what's interesting about that relationship is when I first met that broker um, in 2018, they they told me that they only work with and they listed their clientele. And their clientele are names that everyone knows. And those are the only people they work with. And I dismissed the broker as someone I would never really do business with until I got to that scale. And that that's a pretty large scale. I'm not even at that scale of, <laughs> of the people they were talking about. Um, but what's interesting is, you know, I still stayed in touch from time to time, but I didn't, I didn't put a lot of energy in that relationship because of the fact they were so adamant, but as markets shift, it's, it's interesting to see that even people that you have put on this pedestal, and I don't mean the broker, I mean, the, the, uh, people who are buying from this broker, you have them on this pedestal and you just assume because they are so big, they know what they're doing. And it's interesting to see when you have ch major changes in a market, how different groups respond. And to me, you can always find a deal no matter what cycle we're in it's a matter of just being more creative and we've been creative from the beginning since we're more conservative with our underwriting. So it's forced us to be more creative on how we maximize value of properties where other people have been able to get by off of just being the bigger fish. 
Now I've also been on the other side of that. When I had my single family business, it was very easy for me to get complacent on, okay, we're going to just do a certain amount of homes a year. And I never really learned or honed in the skill of raising capital um, because frankly, we used our own capital and we had a partnership with a lender that really looked favorably on us and gave us great terms. And, you know, we didn't want to get beyond the bandwidth that they wanted to lend to us on. So it was like this perfect relationship, but for about a decade, I never learned how to raise capital. So that by far is, I mean, I, I wouldn't say we're weak at it today, um, but we aren't as strong at it as we are on other fronts. I think bringing on the partner that I have today has overnight, um, you know, significantly changed the way in which we raise capital. Um, and he's tremendous at it. So, um, that, you know, is a, that's an amazing partnership for a lot of reasons, but one in particular is because it filled a void that we had. So I think it's pretty uh, interesting that you sound like you're beating yourself up a little bit. In 13 years, you've gone from one house to over, I think, a thousand units that you've either owned or you're currently owned and manage. Your re most recent largest deal is over 400 units. And you're saying, oh, yeah, we could have did a better job raising more capital, being able to ramp up. I mean, that is really remarkable, actually. Like, I'm like, wow, like I want to, you know, learn from osmosis. It's really, really, truly amazing to see a company go from one unit to where you guys are today in 13 years. So celebrate that. That's very substantial. Um, and I know, because I, I see other people do this, sometimes you, you're so focused on the next goal that you forget to kind of say like, holy crap, look at what we've done. So I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to say, look at what you've done. <laughs> look at what you've done. So I just, you know, I don't want to get lost in this. So I want to make sure that I kind of go back to you. So you were in a different field. You were in pharmaceuticals mm -hmm. and you got into real estate. At what point in your real estate journey did you say, I don't need to work full-time in the pharmaceutical industry anymore? I actually left pharma before our real estate business was carrying what I made in pharma. What happened was my husband, when he first started, he was in the miners and the miners don't make a lot of money. And, um, you know, I was doing very well and he was doing well too, but, um, he then went to the NHL and the NHL, obviously you make a lot of money. The one year we got a tax return back and, my entire salary, which I was making six figures at the time, healthy six figures, um, was not even enough to cover our taxes this year, that year. And I was dumbfounded and I was mad. I was mad at myself because why had I just worked for free for an entire year? And it's my own fault because I didn't educate myself on the rules of life and the rules of life are the tax code. So I always equate it to, if you're playing monopoly, when you first play monopoly, you think the object of the game is to buy as many houses properties as possible. But what you quickly realize is that's not the object of the game. The object of the game is to buy the right properties and build hotels as fast as possible, which means you have to buy houses as fast as possible. So you have to allocate your funds differently and you strategize to play the game in a completely different way than you do the first time playing Monopoly. Well, I think most people in life are playing Monopoly and playing life 
as if they don't know the rules. So affiliating yourself or aligning yourself with a CPA who is real estate focused. And why I say real estate focused, it's because real estate, besides oil, um, real estate, those two are the most tax incentivized investment classes you can invest in to not only you know, defer your taxes, but then ultimately allowing you more capital to have more money working for you. And that's how you build wealth. So that's something I did not realize until, you know, in my late twenties, when going through this aha moment. Um, so just continuing on that path and kind of realizing, okay, I've got to work smarter, not harder. So I left pharma and it was either 2013 or 2014, but we didn't even have our single family business built up by then. So our single family business started started in 2014. Um, fortunately, I was in a situation which you know um, I could leave my job, and I actually created three other companies in the process. So I started four companies when I left my company, and only one of them was real estate related. The other three were not. And, you know, we had success in real estate, but at that time I wasn't super passionate about it. So it took a little bit of time for me to grow passionate about real estate. And I didn't start my multifamily business until I partnered with a group in 2018, but I didn't start my own company until 2000 and. I think it was 2000 when I decided to go about it the way it is today, we're doing my own thing as opposed to partnering. It was 2020. But prior to that, I was partnering with people, um, 2018 and 2019. So multifamily didn't really start until then. Um, but you know, everyone has a different journey and no one's journey is right or wrong. Every journey is different. And the great thing about real estate is real estate is still a business, especially multifamily. I always say you're buying a business and real estate is just attached to it. It's not a real estate business per se. Um, so you can take knowledge from one industry and apply it to another because at the end of the day, it's a business and it's how well you can run a business. So how did you go from the single family rental to multifamily, multi-unit projects and buying those types of assets? When my husband retired in 2016, from December of that year through um, March of, well, actually, no, I'm sorry. It was 2017 to 2018. From December until March, uh, my husband and I threw 22 different real estate asset classes on a dry erase board, which I have like right over there. I don't have the list still up there, but I have the actual board we used to do it. And for three months, every single Saturday, we did like a high school debate class and we went through every single asset class and decided which one we wanted to pursue and which one we both were passionate about, both thought aligned with what we wanted out of life. And we came to the conclusion together that multifamily fit all of our needs and fundamentally what we believed in for investing. So in two, in March of 2018, we came to that conclusion. And then I went and told everyone and anyone who would listen to me that that's what I wanted to do, followed up by saying what value I could provide. So my dad's a general contractor. I grew up in construction. My dad has done both residential, commercial. 
And I have been privy to all of that knowledge and exposure my entire life. So it's natural and it fit perfectly that I would then go into an asset and construction management role because in in pharma, I was more of like kind of a similar asset management type. I was running clinical trials and then I had this construction knowledge and um, uh, there was someone I knew who had just put under contract 124 unit property. So um, they asked me to run construction on it because one of the buildings burnt to the ground while they were under contract and they didn't know anything about construction. That's so cool. I usually ask, so I'm glad you brought it up, you know, knowing where you are now, could you have perceived, uh, you know, looking back at your childhood that it would, would you, were there signs that you might end up in this arena of running this type of business? And it sounds like you were around construction your whole life. Did you think back then when you were a young girl, I'm going to own these types of buildings and projects? I knew that I wanted to be ahead of a company and I knew that I was a natural entrepreneur. Everything I did, um, always, you know, I was always the captain of a team. I was always the team lead of a project. I always took control, um, of everything that I did. So I knew that I had that type of personality. I also too grew up in a pretty poor working class environment and I saw it from the other side. So I never realized there was a way you could actually make money on it. I saw, you know, my dad struggling during market cycle shifts, um, with being able to get work. And then also too, my mom worked for a, a, a small family auto body repair shop of luxury cars. So that also has a huge impact during recessions because people don't get their luxury cars replaced or fixed up. They just deal with it. So that also has an impact. So I saw things on the other side when I first went into, um, into corporate America, I actually, my ultimate goal was to become the CEO of one of the top five pharmaceutical companies in the, in the world. And that's what I was doing. I was on my, on my track to do that. That was my ultimate goal. As fast as I could get there, I was willing to work anywhere from hundred to 130 hour weeks to get there. I got my master's full-time while working full-time. I, nothing was going to stop me. So it doesn't surprise me that I shifted over more into an entrepreneurial do, running and doing my own business and having more control over it. I think what shocks me more is the, the sector that it fell under. Which is really interesting because when I was a young girl, like I didn't become a broker until I was in my mid-30s. I was around the commercial real estate industry in business development roles, younger. Um, but my dad, at when I was like 17, basically pulled me to the side and said, you should go into commercial real estate. You should be a broker. And I was like, what? I'm, and because I was so young, even though I had a glimpse of commercial real estate, in my mind, real estate was houses even though I knew what commercial real estate was, I was like, I don't want to do that. (laughs) A big part of it was he invested in a bad commercial real estate deal um, right before the uh, savings and loans failure, right? Mm -hmm. So he invested in a self-storage deal. And and I look at that and I go, that kept me out of real estate because I watched him lose his entire investment on that just terrible deal. And it wasn't that, well, the deal was bad, but he just didn't have the knowledge. And he aligned himself with some pretty sketchy people who really um, 
didn't do, I don't know if they didn't do a good job of educating him as to what he was really agreeing to, or if it was just the nature of the business. But either way, it kept me away for a really long time and had me soured on real estate and commercial real estate, which is, which is interesting that you say, you know, you came from this place and you looked at it through a different lens. So did I. Um, and then when I got in, I was like, holy cow, this is not what I thought it was. Um, and you know, then I kind of went back and said to my dad, like, why did you invest in something and not do your homework? But it just, there was somebody that they trusted and, you know, unfortunately they just did deal with somebody who was not a good individual. You know, and that happens sometimes. Yep. Um, which is really unfortunate. So I'd love to, you know, segue in that question. How do you, when you were going and partnering with some of these groups, how did you find folks that you felt like were just a really good fit for you professionally and personally? How did you figure out like who were people you could trust? Well, let's just first say that not every deal that I've done has been a good <laughs> partnership deal. Um, so I've learned along the way, I've learned to look for what to look for in a partner. I've learned also to not only to look what to look for in a partner, but also to, I've learned so much about myself mm-hmm. and what I personally need in a partner versus the person can still be a good partner, but that doesn't mean they're a good partner for me. And that is really critical too, because um, I think when you don't, get along or have respect for someone or, you know, there's something that I always say with my partner. So my husband and I first started the multifamily business together, but since then, um, my husband has wanted to exit the business and, um, focus on our family more. And I brought on a new partner. And one of the things, his name is Jay Scott. And one of the things that I think we both say about each other is, wow, I can't believe I get to partner with this person. Still, after years of partnering with them, I still am um, just enamored at the fact that, um, you know, I get to partner with him and he is the same way with me. So I think when you have that mutual respect for someone, you have complementary skills. Um, I like to always run someone through what I call the three C's, which are character, commitment, and capacity. Um, Going through that exercise with someone, personality tests. um, Also to kind of testing the waters. Jay and I worked together for a while before we agreed to be partners. We only, I mean, we partnered on other things, but in smaller capacities, we only fully agreed to be, you know, full-time partners last March, like not this past March, but March of 2021. But I had known Jay for four years prior to that. So even doing other deals, you know, where, where you bring on partners, I don't think I've ever done a deal with a partner that I didn't know before. Um, you know, it takes a long time, especially flipping's one thing flipping, you know, you're in and out of it pretty quickly, multifamily, and commercial real estate in general, it's a, it's a marriage. It's not a date. So knowing that you want to be in a good relationship with someone for a long time, you really have to test the waters. You can't get married to someone until you date them. So I would highly recommend that to anyone when they're trying to figure out the perfect partner for them. Right. 
Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, and I'm not very trustworthy, so I'm like terrible from that. Because <laughs> I'm always like, what are you hiding? <laughs> When's the boogeyman going to jump out? Um, so tell me, what's been your favorite deal so far that you've ever done? Um, I think every single deal has good things and bad things about them. Um, I could literally go through every single deal and say what was great about it and what was horrible about each deal. It's not always tied to partnerships. It's about lessons learned. I think any deal where I can go through the deal and say that I didn't learn something in the process would be the worst deal I've ever done. And fortunately, I can say that I've never gone through a deal like that. I've always learned something on every single deal and then taking that knowledge and applying it to a future deal is something, you know, really critical to continuing to grow. Um, but I've enjoyed all of them. I can't say one is better than another. I know most people will be like, oh, well, this one was amazing because I 2X my return. Well, what about intellectual growth though? To me, that is worth more than a 2X return on your capital because you have intellectual capital and then you have your cash capital, but intellectual capital can grow so much faster than just cash capital. Yeah. It's funny that you say that because um, I have some favorites, right? Some of my favorites, but one of my favorites is a deal that I didn't close. It was a heartbreaker deal. And and when I tell people that, they're always so surprised. They're like, wait, the deal you didn't close is one of your favorites. And I'm like, I learned more on that deal of things to avoid and people yep. to avoid in situations and how to see a situation coming a mile away than 10 other or 15 other deals that I did around that same time frame. And so I, from that perspective, a lot of heartache, a lot of pain, but I learned a ton and I replicate those lessons or I bring those lessons forward in every deal now, which is, it's great. You know, it wasn't fun when I went through it. It wasn't my favorite <laughs> then, but it's certainly one that I look back and go, you know, that made me a better, it made me a better broker, it made me a better negotiator. It made me really look at the deal through the lens of, you know, my seller and their concerns in, a, in just a much more sophisticated way. So um, I really appreciate it that conversation. Um, okay. So since you can't tell me a favorite, how about, um, can you tell me about a deal that, uh, you look back on now and you say that was the strangest thing I have ever dealt with? Well, I say that and then something else comes up and something else comes up. It's constant. Um, <laughs> there's so many things that are just residential real estate is so, uh, predictable. Um, it's predictable in terms of, you know, if it's on market versus off market, there's certain things that are probably going to come up on an off market deal versus an on market deal. And that makes it, you know, makes it easier to deal with when something's predictable. Um, but with commercial, it's the wild, wild west, everything from the contracts being created from scratch every single time to the terms of the contract to, um, just nuances with the different sellers and brokers. I'm hoping that I get to do a deal one time where I'm like, wow, the broker was amazing. And wow, the seller was amazing <laughs> or the buyer was amazing. But I, I find it very peculiar that in commercial, you rarely have a deal 
where you have both the broker and the seller or buyer being easy to work with. There's so much drama. There's so many just posturing. It's very egotistical and it's, you know, people are saying they're not playing games while they're playing games. It's, it's very frustrating. Um, so you just have to, you know, cooler heads prevail and not take it personally, but there are, I mean, I, I think I've seen it all at this point. I don't know, uh, you know, from, I mean, just horrible things like human cages, like for people who have been trafficked to, um, you know, uh, like sewer line breaks that they don't tell you about what, you know, after DD making sure you have, you know, a final walkthrough, like taking concepts you learned in residential real estate and applying it's commercial because typically commercial real estate doesn't have a standard clause on, um, you know, a final walkthrough. Um, but there are just so many different nuances to, commercial real estate that I feel like every single deal, it feels like it's your first deal. Like you're, you know, like there are no two that are alike. So, um, you get better at it. That's for sure. But it's still, it's never like, oh, this is old hat. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I've been doing this almost 20 years and every single deal I learn something new or have some new issue I have to over, overcome. And it's really interesting for me when you first started saying like, a broker, right? You know, because that's my role. Oh, a good broker and a good seller. And I'm sitting here and I'm laughing as you're talking. My face is lit up because I'm like, oh yeah, I would believe most of the seller or buyers I've worked with because I, you know, when I represent the sellers, they're like, we love you. But in every case I've heard, we love you. You're a great broker. You're awesome. It's like the most challenging seller that literally I, like I have to educate the buyer, like, listen, like, Not that I want my buyer, my seller to just do any deal. It has to be the right deal for them. Yeah. But if you just let me help you, like my goal is for everybody to get to the same conclusion, which is a closing. Yeah. So just trust me and I will guide you. And if you don't want to trust me, then we're not going anywhere really quickly <laughs> uh, with some of these really challenging sellers. I tend to um, have a little bit of a reputation down here. I always say I get the most challenging deals. So I look at some of my competitors and I'm like, how did they get that deal? That's like, oh, I got the problem, child. You and you <laughs> and I are so much alike. I, I've said that since ever since I started working, I've always had the most challenging situation. So when I worked in pharma, a friend, a friend of mine and I started at the exact same time and we both were progressing at the same rate, but everything she had was super easy. She could come into the office at nine. She could leave at five and be totally, everything would be super easy. All of our studies enrolled easily, no issues, you know, uh, got regulatory approval and record time. And here I am, I'm working, I'm getting in the office at 6am. I'm leaving at 6pm. I'm working weekends. I'm struggling to get enrollment. I'm, you know, like all these issues with the trials and then transferred over to real estate and the exact same thing happened. All the properties are extremely difficult. All of the, you know, leasing back and running all these things. I remember I had a conversation with someone after I had been in the business for only a year and a half. 
And they had been in the business. They're a very big owner and they had been in the business for about 20, 25 years. And, um, they were talking about something. I was like, Oh yeah, I had that situation come up and this is how I did it. Oh yeah. I had that situation. And after talking to this person for a half hour, they were like, the level of knowledge that you know, in a year and a half, I did not know for the first 15 years I was in this business. So you may be saying to yourself, why me, why me? But you have so much experience that I did not have that you are further ahead than anyone else I know just because of that. And that meant a lot, you know, for someone to, to kind of show me that perspective, because before that I, you know, like you, I was so frustrated that, you know, everyone's getting these cakewalk deals and I'm like, literally sleepless nights to it, you know, getting two to three hours of sleep a night, trying to make these deals not be taken over by the bank. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and you know what? I I like to say that there's a reason why. I don't know what that is, right? Like I'm in this place, universe, God, whatever you believe, it has me here because I'm meant to be here. I'm meant to learn these lessons. I'm meant to help the people that I'm helping. And that's, that's my role. And, and so I, I sort of just embrace it and say, this is what I'm meant to do. And so then I find the love and can really appreciate that. Cause I'm like, you know what? I'm getting that deal because I can handle that deal. That other broker, he would have fired that client. And yeah. then that client would have not have been able to reach their ultimate goal. So I have to find enjoyment in that, but, but it can be frustrating and crazy, especially, um, you know, when you tend to see things time after time after time again you're like why could I just get an easy one like once would be awesome um so you know this whole podcast is about women um you know is about my way of putting a spotlight on other professional women in commercial real estate in land and development primarily because I'm a land broker but I look at all of real estate as a form of development because you're repositioning assets, you're going in and you're trying to add value where there's value add opportunities. But I know you wrote a book with a bunch of other women and your title of your book was The Only Woman in the Room, which I say a lot as a land broker, the only woman in the room after 20 years still. And it gets under my skin to the point of it was the genesis of this podcast because I was like, I'm so tired of being the only woman or the only one or two or three women out of 50 people in the room. Like, I don't want that anymore. So how do I get exposure for other women to come into the industry or how do I go find them? So that was the genesis of the podcast. I want you to tell me what made you write that book? There are three reasons. The first reason was because of the fact that I was at a conference and the co-founders of the real estate investor community, Liz Faircloth and Andressa Gadelli asked for all the women in attendance to have lunch together. And out of 450 attendees, 16 of us put together two tables and had lunch together at this conference. And, you know, I went to an all boys high school. I have never, I, my senior year of college, I lived with 13 other boys and I was the only girl in this house. I have never ever been phased by the fact that I was the only woman in the room, so to speak until that moment. I don't know what happened, but it really came over me like a wave and it 
made me so um, sensitive to the fact that there was no, <laughs> there were barely any women at this conference and I couldn't believe it. Um, I went home that night in the car with my husband and said, I'm going to write a book called the only woman in the room. And I'm going to talk about women in real estate. I had no idea what it was going to look like. And then over the next year, I, um, secretly without women knowing was interviewing women to find 19 other women who I thought could inspire, um, and educate other women, um, to come into real estate. So part of it, the first part was to bring other women into the fold and shine a light on this industry that not a lot of people are talking about with, with, at least with women, that was number one. Number two was because I was frankly sick of going to conferences where women speakers were either on a panel being asked what it's like to be a woman in real estate. To me, that's an insult. It's a waste of that woman's time and expertise to be sitting on a panel talking about their gender with respect to real estate, as opposed to talking about their credibility of why they should be on stage, let alone that they're only on panels or they're in a breakout room. They're never on the main stage and they're never the keynote speaker. Frankly, it pissed me off. And then the third reason was because I have two daughters and I wanted them to, I know they look up to me now because they're five and seven, but when they're teenagers, I'm positive. There are going to be many days where they don't look up to me. And selfishly, I wanted to highlight other women in this space to show them that women can do frankly, anything. And we're not limited. Real estate's not limited by gender. Um, the inch, I think it was the intro to my book. I talk about this woman that I came across who's in her eighties, who's an astrophysicist from university of Pennsylvania that I came across, who's this huge real estate investor. And she became a real estate investor because she realized that rent was not dictated by her gender, that she could collect as much rent, um, as a man, but being paid as an astrophysicist with a degree from university of Pennsylvania was still dictated by her gender. Um, so that was pretty profound <laughs> to, to speak to someone, you know, who is significantly more experienced and wiser than I am and has been at this for a lot longer than I have been. But I just, um, part of it was anger. <laughs> part of it was, um, I'll show you, uh, part of it was to highlight women and get women the credibility that, you know, apparently we need to get on the main stage. We have to have a book behind our name. Okay. Well, here's 19 other women who have a book behind their name. Now a best-selling book. So you have no excuse not to have them on as your keynote speaker. That was pretty important to me. Yeah. And I love that. And I'm so glad that you told the story because that's really what we really have in common <laughs> is that I look at those stages too. And I, and I look at the emails when, when panels or, you know, presentations or conferences get, uh, announced and they sent out the email and I'm like, oh, and all white men, one, two, three, four, five of them. Yeah. Awesome. You mean to tell me, and I won't say any names, but I could, that this organization or this publication or this event institution or whatever, they can find one female in our entire industry in all of North America to get to speak. Are you kidding me? It's a huge thing. 
it's become like my personal brand. So, and I'm like, you know what? If that's what people are going to say when I'm not in the room anyway, <laughs> that I always bitch about that. Well, I might as well go ahead and just make a podcast about it so that I can continue to share the spotlight like you're like you did with your book. I've I've I'm about through oh, probably about 85% through it. I have been reading it. I think it's awesome. I love the Thank fact you. that it's all these women telling their stories. But what I think I love more than the fact that it is gender-based is that so many of these women came from very little economic um, riches. Like some, mm -hmm. of, I mean, so many of them was like, oh yeah, I had no money or I was unemployed when I started this or I did that. And I'm like, wow, that is remarkable. I mean, mm -hmm. that is really wealth creation. And I have been saying for years, because I was the youngest of uh, five kids like you, lower middle class, family, um, lots of sisters. I looked around and said, you know, the only way I'm going to have economic freedom and I'm not going to have somebody push me around in life is I have to go earn it. And that's how I'm going to change my future mm -hmm. is I'm not going to ever let this be somebody else's job to take care of me financially. Um, so if you could get that book into the hands of other women and change one life, 10 lives, 100 lives, I'm all for it. I, I really have enjoyed it. And I think more of those stories need to be told so that women can understand that they can create their own wealth. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that I heard in your book um, yesterday when I was listening to it was one, and I forget who one of the women who who said this, but she, and it might've been you, but I think it was one of your, um, one of your co-authors talked about when they were raising capital and how hard it was. I think it was you actually to go get the capital because so many women were saying like, oh, you have to go talk to my husband. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh my God, like what? <laughs> like we have to stop that. You know, it's, it's okay to have those conversations, but it shouldn't be your gatekeeper. Well, it's, it also perpetuates the problem because, and I'll just be fully transparent. When I first started raising capital and this was pre only woman in the room, I. I'm a very perceptive person. I've always been. And when I'm making phone calls and my conversion rate with men is 80%, my conversion rate with women is 10%. What do you think I'm going to gear my time to towards talking to? I'm going to gear my time towards talking to men because I can convert men. I can mm -hmm. convert them to want to invest, but women, they're more reluctant to invest. They're, you know, there's deal is, you know, time is the biggest uh, deal killer. And, you know, when they say I need to go talk to my spouse and that that's fine. Um, but men don't say that they don't, they make decisions on their own and they inform their spouse. This is the decision I made. I'm going to invest in this, or maybe they don't inform. Maybe they're just controlling the finances altogether. But I can tell you that many times when I talk to women, they, they did not want to make any financial decisions. They wanted the man to make the financial decision. And I totally understand there's a part of my book where I have my own philosophy on why that is. I think generation, generate, general, generationally. Um, if you look back, you can see that women weren't encouraged to get an education when they finally were encouraged to get an education. It was limited into what type of education they could get. Then it was expanded 
Um, and, you know, only in the past generation or two have women even considered STEM fields. And if you don't have a foundation in STEM, I, I don't care. You're not going to feel confident when it comes to investing, because to me, mathematics, accounting, finance, those are all the basics that you need to have to have any sort of confidence when you're making an investing decision. So when you limit someone's educational opportunity right from the get-go, unless someone takes the time to self-educate, they're at a detriment compared to the general population on making investing decisions. So we're continuing to perpetuate this the problem when we never fill in that gap of knowledge. So we have two potential solutions. We either ignore the situation and continue just target men. Um, you know, I get a lot of analytics on all of our marketing efforts and even my followers on Instagram, they're predominantly men. They're not women, you know? So my content is geared towards attracting more followers and how, what type of content do you think that I'm publishing? You know, there, there's a business behind it. You know, I can't go out and do more deals and I can't, provide more opportunities unless I have a larger following and, and capital behind that. And where is that capital coming from? So there's that option where the other option is that we do it coinciding with education and providing tools to bridge the gap. So by, you know, I do a lot of speaking engagements for women in investing, um, you know, I'm flying out to Wisconsin in a few weeks um, for, a women's event, um, the book. I work with the real estate investor community, um, also providing more education and support for women uh, real estate investors. So we all have to do our part. We can't just rely on one person to do it. We all need to do our part. But that involves, you know, I I spoke in an event one time a couple of years ago, and I brought my notes up on stage, and I didn't read from my notes except for one part. And I said, can, and I handed it some to someone. I said, can you read this line right here on what I'm supposed to say during this slide? And they said, look around the room. There's less than 10% of women in attendance in this room. Everyone here has a sister, mother, friend, aunt, cousin, et cetera, that they could have brought to this meeting with them. It's a free meeting, but no one chose to do so. And everyone looked around the room and there were less than 10% of women in the audience. And I said, I didn't get the roster in advance. I just knew that was going to be the case. So that was really eye-opening to a lot of people. Everyone came up to me afterwards and were like, I can't believe you had that typed out as a note. And that's what actually happened. And it's like, that's the lens that women see things in. It's not just me. Every other woman that is sitting in this room recognizes this, whether consciously or subconsciously, but it sends a message. That's why when we go to these events, Women don't typically, if they see a table and there's a couple of women there and they see a table of all men, a woman naturally goes over to the table with women at it. I make a point anytime I go to an event that I find a table of all men and I make sure they all are really chummy chummy with them, each other. Like I'll attend RIAs where I haven't attended them before and I know, oh, this group of guys always sits together and I go and sit with them. And it like totally disrupts their whole ecosystem they have going on there. But what's the point of going to a RIA unless you expand and try to learn from each other and network, you know, if you're just sitting with the same people every single time. So I'm doing a benefit to them too. They just haven't realized it yet. I absolutely love that. And you see me like shaking my head because I literally do the same thing, right? It's not hard <laughs> in my business, but 
I do look around the room and I'm like, okay, I go through two questions. I either go, okay, is there somebody I need to get close to, right? Or that I want to meet? Or what group of guys can I disrupt today? <laughs> Who can I learn from? How can I expand my network? Like what I'm going to do, you know, that doesn't, doesn't mean that I always do it, but I do it a lot uh, because every once in a while, I, I'm pretty confident. I will see some women and I'm like, okay, I need to like bring that level of confidence to them. So occasionally I'll actually grab somebody else, you know, another woman. I'll be like, come with me. We're going to go sit at that table. Yeah. There's two spots. Let's go over there. Um, but, you know, it, it's it's really great. It's really important. I, I agree with you on um, STEM mathematics in particular. I was always a really strong math student. Um, and, you know, I use that every day. Every single day. I'm like, I use that more than any other skill. That and, you know, communication, obviously. But, and I'm a land broker. But Matt, I'm like you. I'm in analytics. I'm watching market trends. I'm, as a land broker, in my field and what I do, I have to know a lot about a lot. I have to know what's happening in cap rates. I have to know what's happening in vacancy rates of, you know, industrial and multifamily and what's happening in, in sales on the single family. Cause those are the, I'm selling the land that's going to become yeah. those things. And that makes a difference in my business, which brings me to um, one more question to, before we sum up things, um, how challenging is it for you guys right now, given the current capital environment? I mean, there's some significant changes that I'm seeing affecting mm -hmm. my business uh, from debt and equity. Is, are you guys seeing that that shift yes. right now too? And uh, how do you balance that? Excellent question. Um, a couple of things with respect to the shifts in debt and equity. I think with respect to debt, um, I think it's more predictable than if you had asked me four months ago, um, you know, when we were looking at... Um, April going into May, like it was, it was pretty uncertain, you know, what the fed was going to do with the interest rate, uh, hikes, but now it's a little bit more predictable. I mean, they said what they're going to do for the whole year. So if you took that underlying assumption and plugged it in, you know, we were off by a little bit. Um, but who knows what they're going to do the rest of the year, they might balance it out, but you know, interest rate hikes, they said they were going to do at every single meeting for the rest of the year. And there were six meetings when remaining when they made that announcement. Um, with respect to how that's impacted the debt markets, uh, I definitely see lenders being um, more cautious on lending right now. I see that through lower LTVs. Um, you know, obviously the interest rates are, are hiking up a bit, but to me, it's all a seesaw effect because you can't be super cautious and less LTV and all these things and deploy the same amount of capital. Um, they have quotas that they need to hit as well. Um, and if we look back over, you know, the past two years, COVID disrupted their metrics in terms of deploying capital. And when capital is not deployed, they're losing it and losing money. And not only are they losing money, but arguably in a high interest rate environment, they're losing even more money than what they would have been uh, losing pre-COVID. So in terms of, you know, when we look back at the lending that they were doing 
Um, during COVID, they got like a little bit more aggressive for a period of time because of the fact that they needed to deploy all this capital. Cap rates were still compressed. That created the perfect storm for this multifamily frenzy that was going on. And people were just buying at insane uh, compressed cap rates and, and the um, lenders were supporting it. I think a couple things I think a couple things we're going to see um, coming down the road. First and foremost is the fact that pr prior to all of that, a lot of people were buying off of floating interest rates. And floating interest rates, I think, are going to rear their ugly head because I don't think people planned for the interest rates to go up as quickly as they've gone up. So I don't think in terms of their DSCR, they're going to be able to hit those uh, metrics um, with where the interest rates are today and whether or not they can buy a new cap rate, just to kind of give a comparison. I bought a property in September of 2020 and purchased a cap rate, three-year cap rate for $30,000. That same cap rate today is $411,000. So in terms of someone being able to, you know, have accrued that capital over the past two years, because you know, in a month from now, it'll be two years to have accrued that type of capital um, over the past two years and the year remaining, you know, if next year when the cap rate expires to have 411,000 ready to be deployed to buy another cap rate of, you know, similar terms. I don't think, I don't think people plan for that. So I, I know, frankly, we didn't plan for that either. So we, as, as we started to see the cap rates go up, we started accruing more and more and more money to make sure we do have that cushion in place. And that's why you have operational reserves, et cetera. But, um, the, um, the thing that I think is that's happening now is, you know, people are going to want to get out of those variable interest rates, those floating interest rates. So I think we're going to see that. I also still think that there's a lot of 1031 money still circulating on the equity side of things. So I think that the cap rates have expanded more than what pe most people are saying they're at right now. I think cap rates are actually um, uh, inflated, but compressed inflated. Um, so not inflated in terms of expanding uh, expansion. They're they're um, they're more expanded than they naturally are. I think they're compressed more than they really are because of the fact that we still have 1031 money that needs to be needs to be. Um, needs to find a home. So with respect to equity, I think equity is not as um, available as it used to be coupled with the debt. So you have kind of this tightening of the market. Well, what are the lenders going to do? Because going back to what I originally said, they need to find ways in which they can keep this money working for all of their you know, investors, their individual investors. So I think they're going to get loose on terms again. I think we'll probably see that Probably in the spring of next year, I think we're going to see some loosening of the restrictions again, whether that takes the form of net worth and liquidity requirements, whether, you know, um, government backed loans like Fannie and Freddie become more competitive to um, seek out, you know, once Fannie and Freddie are close to bridge, like, you know, that, that kind of tells some of the story right there in terms of the rates. So I think there's going to be some balancing going on once again, spring of next year until we get to a more stabilized lending rate again. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Even though I'm on the other end of the deal, I hear all those discussions, right? And and talk with those different capital groups. Um, it's painful being on the land side though, because with what happens in underwriting is they all come back and they say, well, we can't pay. 
<laughs> for the land. We can't give you X dollars per unit for the land um, because they're trying to anticipate those changes. And I'm like, come on, y'all. By the time you build and you get it out of the ground, you get it stabilized, you're looking like four years down the road, three and a half years down the road. Like nobody can predict what's going to happen, but they still do try. Um, so it's it's a little bit of a challenging time right now for the landowner who is being asked to kind of take all of that brought if they want to sell. Uh, but that's where we are in the cycle and it is cyclical and you have to kind of know what's happening. So even from, like you said, math, finance, even though finance isn't considered technically a STEM field, it probably should be um, really important. Um, you have to kind of be paying attention to what's happening from the federal government and globally too. Like where's, where are people investing and where's the yield? And you know, one thing I'm starting to watch and just kind of pay attention to is what's happening in the Chinese residential market. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm like, oof, what are the implications for that? Is that coming yeah. to a town near us soon? And what does that look like? You know, I think it's a whole different set of circumstances, but at the same time, I'm like, is that going to be something here we might see in some way? Um, I think if I had to predict, I would say possibly in the office market. <laughs> You know, we, we have a huge shift happening, but but we'll see. Maybe, I don't think in multifamily, I think if anything happened with COVID is that um, where people live has been really uh, shown as being like one of the safest investments you can make. Yeah. People need a place to live and to gather and that's going to be homes or apartments forever. You know, you just have to buy right. Um, and it's all right. Okay. So I know this has been going on for a while. I'm going to go ahead and get right into the um, the last few questions I have for you. Um, and I think you kind of already spoke about this briefly, but I'd love for you to maybe take this to the next level. If a young woman or a woman in general said, okay, I've been in commercial real estate my whole career. I'm not doing my own investment. Hey, Ashley, do you have any advice for me? How would I get started? Like, I know what I'm doing. I know how to underwrite a deal. I know how to look at it. And they called you and said, what would you be your best piece of advice? What would you tell them? For a passive investor or for an active investor? You pick. Um, for, I guess for either one, but really for a passive investor, I think most people look at a deal first and then um, the market and then the team. And I think you should always look at the team first and vet the credibility of the team before anything else and not be swindled by return metrics but really know a team very thoroughly, make sure that they've all worked together uh, previously, that they have experience on that type of deal and that type of market, all the way down to have they worked with a property management company before. Um, it doesn't have to be yes to all of those answers, but the majority should be yes. You shouldn't be going with someone who um, everything is novel. Um, so you don't want them learning on your dime is basically what it comes down to. I think a lot of people look at returns and they look at markets and someone has a deal in Austin and all of a sudden everyone wants to invest because it's in Austin. But there are a lot of different parts of Austin and there are a lot of people who can take a great deal and make it horrible. Um, but there are a lot of good deals that can um, be made from towns that you've never heard of before from an excellent uh, team. So, you know, we have an example of that uh, we had an investment that we sold in September in Amarillo, Texas, when I was raising capital for it. Half the time I had to educate people on where Amarillo, Texas was. Uh, they had never heard of it before. Um, but that deal in, um, in 
two years and three months provided a uh, 34% average annual return to our investors. Um, so the investors were quite happy with that deal, but that goes to show you that it doesn't always come down to investing in the hottest market. Um, you can get really solid returns with a really solid team, a really great business plan, um, and strong market fundamentals. One thing about Amarillo, Texas, and I'm not pitching Amar I don't have a deal in Amarillo, Texas to offer to anyone. I don't even know if I would go back there to be honest with you, but at the same time, I can tell you that Amarillo, Texas was one of the top five most re recession resistant markets in the entire country. And most people don't even know that. Most people don't even know how to analyze for a recession resistant market. So these are things that you have to look at when you find a good team. Have they done a very thorough market analysis? It's not just, you know, the team in terms of likability and visibility and, um, you know, experience. It's, 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 are they considering market economics? Are they considering um, CapEx strategies? Are they business savvy? Those are all things that you should consider. Um, so it takes a lot of work. There's no such thing as a passive investment, in my opinion, because there is a, a tremendous amount of active work that you need to do before you can quote unquote passively invest. So I would encourage everyone to do that homework up front so you don't get burned in the long run. And then you're doing a lot of work when you're angry, <laughs> um, not only at the deal, but kind of at yourself for not have putting in the work in the first place. Yeah. Um, great advice. Okay, so other than the book that you wrote with those other women, mm -hmm. um, is there a book that you love that keeps you inspired or that you go to and you reread and you say, you know, this is a really good, really good book that I could recommend to someone else to read in business? I surprisingly like to reread almost every book that I read because I'm of the opinion that when you are at different points in your life, you pull different components out of a book that help you at different points of your life that you didn't recognize before. It's almost like the self-fulfilling prophecy kind of uh, theory. But I also am a huge fan of anything by Malcolm Gladwell. Um, I was a psychology undergrad. So when I look at economics, I'm always looking at the why behind it. I don't look at metrics and just look at them in a silo. I'm trying to identify all of the causes so I can do a better job of um, predicting, uh, future events. Great advice. Okay. Finally, and this is the really the easiest one. Uh, if someone is here today and they're listening to our conversation, where is the best place for them on social media to follow you and some of the content that you share? Like, I already know the answer to this, but I would like for you to share it as well. So on Instagram is probably my most entertaining out of all the social media handles. So my Instagram handle is bad ash investor. So it's B A D A S H for my name, Ashley investor on LinkedIn though. I post a lot of more strategic, uh, content, um, my analysis of markets, the multifamily sector, real estate in general, um, and tips and tricks along the way. But Instagram is definitely the more entertaining platform. Yeah, I love I love your post. Um, and one thing I'm going to leave you with a very, very final question I'm going to ask, because um, I actually went back and stalked your Instagram 
And I love, <laughs> I love it. Um, but there was one that I actually came across this weekend that I was like, okay, I'm going to ask her about this because this one was a really good one. So on May 13th, I'm okay. not going to for you to know which one. You um, posted, I think it was a TikTok that you originally created and then you posted it on Instagram. And it, I just thought it was like quite entertaining. So it was a point of view uh, post and you had um, your first LOI versus your 10th LOI <laughs> in the same week. Um, and for those listeners, uh, you had the first LOI that you didn't get accepted. You had Olivia Rodrigo's driver's license music. And some of my audience might not know what that song is about, but I have a 21-year-old daughter who loves <laughs> Olivia. So I know. Um, and then your 10th post was Alanis Morissette's You Ought to Know. I literally laughed out loud because I feel like that's my life all the time. <laughs> As we part, I want you to tell me how you felt when you made that decision, when you said, I'm going to post this because this is my life. Tell me a little bit more about that. Um, I like posting more entertaining con content. Um, so to me, conceptually in my mind, I'm like, this could be a really great post, but like putting it together, the self-consciousness that comes over me of putting together that kind of real, um, is overwhelming. So typically I have it in my head for like a week to two weeks, but it takes me a while to build up the confidence to pull the trigger and do it. And I have all these excuses in my head, like, Oh, I didn't do my makeup today or, Oh, it's good. It's going to take too much effort moving the lighting into this other room or, Oh, I don't have time to edit the reel. Um, but I think that's a takeaway for life. that the hardest thing to do in life is to get started. And once you have the idea, if you pull the trigger, you'd be, you know, that post, I think you said it was May 13th, that post could have probably been posted on May 3rd. And that kind of speaks to, you know, opportunity costs, like what opportunity cost was lost by me delaying posting that. Now this is so trivial and it might be something stupid, but you know, what if it was something that was game changer? Like I'm trying to raise capital for a deal. And what if, you know, just there was some other trend on, on Instagram that day where everyone was looking up real estate memes and it happened to be on May 3rd and I had tagged mine with real estate memes and it had come up. Maybe I would have gained a hundred followers. Maybe I would have been able to fund another deal, you know, who knows, but because of that self-confidence that I had of posting that reel and it took me so long to do it, um, you know, that also too is a lot of, um, you know, a space in my brain that was taken up by thinking through all these kind of negative thoughts on why I shouldn't do it as opposed to just doing it and then freeing up my mind to move on to the next thing. So I don't know if that's actually what you really wananted to hear, but so, that's so kind of the actually, internal conflict I have with life so with it's social really media. That you, that you mentioned the internal conflict because where I was going was it was the mind sh mindset shift. So um, as we end again, the first LOI, when you make you know an offer on the week, if you do it on a Monday and you don't get it, it could be so deflating. Mm -hmm. And in your post, you're like in bed and you're oh, like, like crying, crying over sobbing. until you're not getting, right? And you're like, oh, I know you love this other person, but like I really wanted you. And the amount of work that goes into yeah. saying like, all right, hit the sun button, you know? Yeah. And then by the end of the week, after you've done 10 of these, and you get the 10th one rejected, you're like, I'm a badass. 
or bad ash, right? Yeah. And I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to put my sunglasses on and I'll be like, okay, you like, you ought to know who I am by now. Like for me, I was hoping for the angle of the mind shift, but the mindset shift. But I think you did that even in talking about posting the it. confidence, right? That it took yeah. for you to kind of do it, get past it. Um, and hopefully I've given you some inspiration of saying like, I loved it. I laughed out loud <laughs> because I feel like I live it. Maybe that will give you, you know, a little bit of inspiration to go and do something else entertaining today or later this week. Ashley, it was a pure pleasure to have you and to have you give so much time to us here today. Um, you know, I can't stress enough how important it is not only for us to have spotlight on other really successful women in our business, but also sharing our stories and our careers and our lessons that we've learned and encountered throughout our careers and what we're working on. And I just want to thank you for helping me fight for parity, even though really our first encounter was like a week ago. Um, <laughs> I've been following you for months and online. And, and I said months ago, I'm going to interview her one day, you know, because I so admire the messaging, not only in your business, creating wealth for yourself and your family and your investors, but also making sure that you're pulling women in the room with you and helping to share the stage with them. So thank you for that. And I hope you have thank a Thank you. Day. All right. Take care. Thanks again. Thank you for joining us for another episode of She's Wild, the podcast for women in land and development. If you enjoyed today's show, please go out and rate us so that we can be found by other women in our industry. And if you know women who are working in land and development, please share this podcast with them. And if you know a total rock star woman, badass chick who is killing it in land and development anywhere in North America, I want to know who she is. Please reach out to me so that I can feature her on an upcoming episode.